The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. John chapter 7 is where we pick up our study today. We've been journeying through the book of John, 21 chapters, but all one story with one purpose. Uh, John tells us at the end of this book, uh, the book of John, uh, that he's written everything he's written that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Uh, As we've been walking kind of one step at a time with Jesus through his life, we have arrived on the scene. We've seen Jesus recruit some followers uh, by the thousands. And yet many who are following are following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And yet there are a few, select few, who are seeing through the height, seeing through the uh, amazement of the works Jesus is doing for what, and seeing them for what they are. Throughout the book of John, Jesus is going to perform seven really big deal miracles. And John, the writer, calls them signs. Signs serve a purpose. They point you in the right direction. These miracles are not to be worshipped and looked at in and of themselves as cool acts. I mean, I love a good magic show. I love uh, seeing uh, shows and being amazed and blown away. But Jesus didn't come to be the next sideshow. He came to point to himself as the Savior of the world. And so through seven key miracles and seven key statements that led the people hearing them, to either want to worship him or see him killed, we see these statements be made and people draw lines and choose sides. Today we're continuing in chapter 7 and we're about six months out from the crucifixion. Jesus has been kind of living the ministry years of his life. The last three years of his life are spent drawing us to himself, pointing to the Father, pointing to himself as the Savior. And from about the age of 30 to about 32 and a half is where we are right now. He dies at the end of, after about 33 years of life. And there's crowds that are forming that are picking sides. Some are amazed by the works he's doing and wanting to follow him from place to place to see what he's going to do next. Others are getting very upset because some of the statements he's made uh, has outright been called blasphemy. He's referring to himself in more ways than one, that he's God, that he's the Messiah, the prophet. The, The people of this area, the Jews, and many who have converted to Jewish beliefs, have been waiting for the coming Messiah. Some of them are excited that Jesus just might be the guy. And others want him arrested. They want him shut up. They want him killed. And we're in the midst of a festival. in, In the Jewish traditions, there are many festivals throughout the year where they look back and remember what God had done for them in their past. And... This particular festival is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And literally what people would do is for seven days, they would go outside of their home and they would build a tent, a a temporary building, a shack of sorts, and they would live in it. They would eat in it. They would 
basically do everything you'd normally do in your house in this tent, booth, shack type thing for seven years as a remembrance of how the people of Israel had to live in these temporary dwellings for 40 years. How God led them from Egypt to the promised land and they would have to pick up, they would have to go out each morning and find the food that God provided in the form of manna. They would drink from water that would come from a rock. They would be fed meat in the form of quail. And over and over again, even though the people were disobedient, they were grumbling, they were complaining, they were faithless, God remained faithful still and provided for them each step of the way. And so reflecting and remembering, they would go and live in the same way to kind of remember what it might have been like to go through the wilderness after God provided. Another special element that would happen is the priests of the day would go to the pool of Siloam and they would get a pitcher of water and they would carry it to the temple and they would pour this water out on the temple and they would go back and forth doing this over and over again. And Jesus, he goes to the festival, but he arrives just about the time it's about over. They've been living in these tabernacles, these little booths, these little tents. They've been pouring the water on the altar, and Jesus shows up. He sneaks into town. He doesn't even go the normal route. He goes through Samaria, where he would not be you know, seen, maybe even jumped, maybe even killed. He knew they wanted to kill him, but it was not yet his time. It was not yet his hour. We're going to see him say those words again. And he sneaks into town, and he goes, not to the streets, but to the synagogue, where many would gather together to hear whatever rabbi was on schedule to teach from that day. And Jesus shows up, and people are, people, hey, hey, have you heard of Jesus' coming? Some are very excited. Others are like, man, I hope he stays away. He's trouble. He's leading people astray. And, and camps are forming. Some just want to see him. Some are believing in him, and some are upset by him. And so he shows up on the scene, and he begins to teach. Now, in the midst of the conversation we broke last week, so we're going to pick up in verse 25 to see how the events unfolded on this particular day. There's one more day for the feast left. It's like day six of the feast celebration. Jesus is in the, te- uh, in the synagogue. He's just told the religious elite of the day that they don't know God. You say you live by the law. You say, and, and, and for the Pharisees, this religious elite, they like memorized the Old Testament. They devoted themselves to trying to do their best to prove to everyone that they could obey the 613 laws. And Jesus calls them out. You think you can find salvation in the law. You don't even know the law. Because of the, the most important laws, the Ten Commandments, the sixth one is thou shalt not kill. And in your heart, you are conspiring to kill me. You don't even live by the law. You know why you don't live by the law? Because you don't even know the author of the law. You, you think Moses gave you the law, and, and you choose to break these laws and keep these laws to fit whatever is going to make life more convenient for you. You want to make yourself look better? You puff up your chest and say, God, I thank you that I am so righteous, and I'm not like that sinner over there. Jesus calls him out and says, you don't, you don't know the law, you don't know my father, and that's why you don't know me. You can't know me if you don't know the father. 
works that we have done. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 25. And here he is. He's right here. They, they want to kill him, but here he is. He's openly speaking. Why isn't anyone taking him out? And so they begin to think to themselves, well, maybe the, the religious elite, maybe the Pharisees and the leaders, maybe they know something that we don't. Maybe he really is the Messiah. And, and nobody wants to kill God. Nobody wants to kill God's chosen one. Here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But how can this be, others said? We know that where this man comes from, and we know that when the Christ appears, the Messiah, no one will know where he comes from. There was this long-standing belief that the Messiah would show up kind of like an angel, that he wouldn't be anyone that that was just a normal, average Joe. He would be someone that would appear and all of a sudden, oh, oh, it's the Messiah. But they're looking at Jesus and they're like, wait, isn't that Joseph's boy? Yeah, he, I, I got a coffee table in my house built by him. He, he ain't the Messiah. But isn't that Mary's son? Yeah, I used to babysit him. I used to change his diapers. They knew this man. Many of them were like, there's no way this can be the Messiah because we know where he comes from and no one good comes from Nazareth. There was much debate. How can this be the Is he the Christ? Why are they trying to kill him? Well, maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the Messiah. No, we know who he is. He can't be the Messiah. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. A proclamation is not just a statement. Jesus making a proclamation is he is he's he always spoke truth, but there is something significant to the words that he is about to say. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. He said to them, you know me and you know where I come from. Sure, you 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 think you know me. And yes, you know where I've grown up physically. You know my background. You know my upbringing. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. Again, he's not, he's not saying things plainly all the time, but they are reading between the lines. They are understanding what he's talking about, and this is offending them to the core. These are the religious elite of the day. And he is telling them, you don't know God. You don't know the one who sent him. I do know him, verse 29, and I come from him. Sure, there were many sent by God, many prophets. But to be sent by God is different than to come from God. And Jesus is claiming, I'm not just sent by him, I come from him. And John, later he will say, I and the Father are one. He's not mixing his words. He's not trying to be misunderstood, but the spiritually blind of the day don't understand where he's coming from because they don't know the Father. So Jesus proclaimed, you know me and you know where I've come from, but I have not come of my own court. I have come from the one who sent me. He is true and him you do not know, but 
I know him and I come from him. And he sent me so that I, so that, um, so they were seeking to arrest him because of this. These are key words that are separating him from any other rabbi. There are many other rabbis who would teach. Let's do as the Father wants us to do. God is our heavenly Father, but none would dare say that I come from the Father. None would dare say, you don't know God, but I know him. None would say that. And for these reasons, they were seeking to arrest him. And watch this, verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. For those of you who have been in church long enough, you know why Jesus came. It's not a surprise to you. He came to go and lay down his life on a cross for each of us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have our debt paid, so that we could receive new life. That was the hour, the purpose of Jesus coming, to die and to defeat death and be raised again. And that hour was not yet come. We saw those words at the beginning of uh, the teaching last week when the brothers were like, hey, go to Jerusalem, go to the festival, become popular again, win back all your followers, all those that left you a chapter ago, go and preach a happy, joy-loving message and win them all back said, your time is now. Now is not my time. He knew they wanted to kill him. And here they go to arrest him. But no one does. You know why? Because God is in control of everything. No one killed Jesus. He laid down his life. Jesus even in the midst of his trials said to those who were judging him, and even Pilate, you would have no power over my father and I would empower you. They sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Here's what we need to see. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Over and over again, we're going to see this message proclaimed true throughout the book of John. In John chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What you do with Jesus determines everything of, about your standing with the Father. John 5, 42 and 43, I know that you do not have the love of God within you, I have come from my Father's name, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. John 6, 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. John 8, 19. You know neither me nor my Father. You don't know either of us. If you knew me, you would know my Heavenly Father as well. John 8, 42. If God were your Father, There are many people in this world. I have, I have good friends who my heart breaks for who don't believe in Jesus. I have good, rel- 
religious friends who believe, who are, who, are, who are Muslim. I have a friend who's Buddhist. They believe that salvation comes in a variety of different forms, but none of them involve Jesus as Savior. And even though, and, and not even though, but because my heart loves them, because I care for them as people, my heart breaks. I had a friend in high school who wasn't sure what he was. His family was Buddhist. He was Chinese. He knew there was a God. He just had come to that point of his life, but he wasn't sure totally. And one night we were having a sleepover, and he just said, John, I know that you uh, believe in Jesus and God. I've even heard you say that God is love. Do you believe that I can love without knowing God? And I just sat there quiet. I'm a junior in high school. How do I answer this deep question? And as I sat there, I felt the Holy Spirit just tell me, you know what? Unless you know God, you will be born in love. Love is not just something God does. Love is who God is. God is love. And there are many aspects of love that many of us can feel and experience. But the fullness of who God really is, his love, is apart from it. We cannot understand the depth of what true love is. And so I just said, friends, I, I shared all this with them, and, and I've now had time to rethink it, and so I can summarize it. It took a lot longer to get all that out, but I just said, friends, us to love him. He created us to be in a loving relationship with him. But if we will not love and have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we cannot know God fully. It's offensive. It's true. And Jesus came because it was so offensive. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him because he was speaking. Verse 31, yet many of them believed in him. Now, there's a couple things going on. We've seen in the book of John, different groups of people believe in different ways. Some are believing simply in the signs that he's doing. Jesus even says, you're not coming to me because you want me. You believe in your belly being full, and you just want another meal. Others said they believed deeper in him, but... Once they heard his harsh words, they chose not to follow him any longer. The scriptures even tell us the demons believed in Jesus and began to tremble. There are different forms of belief. And the kind of belief that we're going to point out today is a saving belief. And it's different than just an awestruck belief. I can believe a lot of things, but in, until I cross the line, it does not come saving belief. And we're going to see that unfold here. Um, verse 31, yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? I think some of them were asking in a sincere way. We really believe that Jesus is. I mean, 
look at the things he'd done. Even Nicodemus said, the things that you've done in chapter 3 prove that you are different, that you are from the Father in heaven. And others have had their eyes open. They've seen the signs Jesus had done. They've been pierced to the heart, and they have put sincere belief in him. Others, well, who's the next great show? Is he going to do even better things? When, when the Messiah, if this guy isn't the Messiah, when the true Christ appears, is he going to even do more signs than this man has done? Again, we have, we have people, even today, who are simply into seeing signs. They want a Jesus who can fix their marriage. They want a Jesus who can heal their kids. They want a Jesus who can help them get out of debt. But as soon as that Jesus steps up and says, I want to be a part of every area of your life, and if you're not eating of me, and drinking of me, and reading of me, then you can have no part of me. And they're like, well, that's a little too hard. Let me go find my answers in the 21 steps to break the body, whatever it is, system. Let me see that. And so the Pharisees, the, 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 the members of the Sanhedrin, the ones who ultimately went to the Roman government of the day and said, we need this man killed. They finally insert themselves, those in higher authority, and they're like, the crowd is starting to buy into him. Some of them are starting to follow him. At first, we thought he was just a kook and, you know, crazy people. They don't really get a following, but there's something different about him, and we may need to, we need to stop this. And so they insert themselves. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So these officers go, and they're, I'm sure they're face-to-face -face with Jesus, and they're, they're even hearing the things that he is teaching. And how do we know this? Look at verse 45 real quick. The, the officers go, and they're awestruck. And they come back, but they don't have Jesus with them. And, and the the, the, the priests and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, look at the officers and they say, whoa, wait a minute. We sent you to do a job. You were supposed to go arrest that crazy nut and bring him back. Why haven't you? Look at verse 45. Jump down. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said, who said to them, why did you not bring him back? Why didn't you arrest Jesus and bring him here? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. He didn't like, you know, sneak away. He didn't like pull out a gun and have a firefight. His simple words of truth stopped them in their I'm sure some of them, maybe even, maybe we'll run into an officer or two in heaven one day. And he'll tell us a story. It was that day that I came to him. And he was the Messiah. The Pharisees sent the officials to arrest him. But Jesus' calm, authoritative words are, are, are continue. And the officers walk away saying no one ever spoke like him. 
the Jews said to one another. Actually, let me, let, let's look at what Jesus did say. What were the words that Jesus said? Verse 33. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. Six more months. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Does that sound familiar to another verse? Jeremiah 29. Isn't it there where it says, you will seek me and you will not find me? Is that what it says? Jeremiah said, you will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with your whole heart. These who were present weren't seeking Jesus with their whole heart. And that's why they would not find him. Many of us were looking for Jesus in a lot of different ways, but we're not looking for him at full heart, with full heart. And unless we are willing to completely surrender who we are to him completely and be his covenant savior with the Lord, we'll never truly find him. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In John 14, Jesus is going to say the exact opposite to a different group of people. Let me read it for you. Jesus just told this crowd, you're going to seek me, but you can't find me. Where I'm going, you can't come. In 14, he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. That other group that we just spoke of, they, they can't come to the Father unless they're willing to come through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And he's speaking to those who he has put their belief in him. You do know him because you have seen him. What we do with Jesus determines our relationship with the Father. These individuals in their current state, they are not believing in God. They're not believing in Jesus. They don't know God. They don't know the law. They don't know the heart behind the law. So the Jews said to one another in 35, where does this man intend to go that we won't be able to find him? Does he plan to go out to the dispersion among the Greeks and leave this area and go and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by this saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am going, you cannot come. They were just totally blinded spiritually, not able to get it. So on the last day of the feast, seven days have now passed. They have been building these booths and living in them. They have been carrying their pitchers of water. Jesus steps into the midst of that backdrop intentionally to say this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, the only scriptures they have, are the Old Testament, as the scriptures, as the Old Testament prophets, as the scriptures of old, the things that you've dedicated your life to, they all point to me. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This echoes back to John chapter 4. Jesus shared this same message in Samaria with the woman at the well. In Isaiah 58, 11, the scriptures tell us that you will become a people that are, that are, that are washed clean, that have a river poured over you and run through you to give nourishment to others. 700 years earlier, these prophecies were made about the one standing in their midst that day. If you would put your belief in me, as the scriptures have said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. John 15, Acts 1, 8, both point to what Jesus was talking about. Now this was said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive. Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. We know that in John chapter 14, as he's as Jesus is preparing, uh, just a week before he's about to go to the cross, Jesus has been telling them, I've come to die. Peter's like, no, there's no way. I'm not letting anybody. And Jesus literally says to Peter, this is so much the reason I've come that me not dying is the plan of the Satan, uh, of Satan. And so Peter, if you're going to get if you're going to try to stop me, get behind me, Satan. Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. As I go, the Father is going to send another, the Holy Spirit. And he will be a helper, a counselor. He will teach you and guide you in all things. And right before Jesus goes to heaven, after he goes to the cross and rises again, <coughs> Jesus is standing there with his disciples. And he's like, okay, everything I've taught you, go and make disciples. Go and teach others. Baptize them. Teach them everything I've taught you. But wait, do not start until the Spirit comes. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the age. Jesus' promise here is, 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 is beautiful because... The priest kept grabbing these pitchers of water from the pool of Shalom and bringing them and pouring them on the altar so that as a symbol that God would one day pour out his spirit and cleanse the land. And Jesus is sitting here saying, if you believed in me, you would receive the spirit. If you believed in me, you would receive the very waters that you're celebrating all week long being poured out. I have come to pour out my spirit into you that you would receive and that you would only not only become a recipient, but out of you would flow rivers of living water. And like the woman at the well, she received. She came for a bucket of water. She left with the whole well. She left with the river inside of her, and she runs back to town, the river flowing out of her, and the whole town comes to know Jesus. A little point of application here. For those of you that have God's spirit, the river inside of you, is the river flowing out of you. Who in your life is being nourished by the presence of Jesus in you? Who is coming to know him as Savior and King because of the story that your life is telling? The woman at the well, remember her story? She wasn't a 
seminary graduate. She didn't have a deep theology, theological degree. She simply said, let me tell you about a man who was born in a cave. Anyone thirsts, come and make your joy rapidly. The conditions for Jesus, for receiving Jesus, and he is speaking now to his enemies, remember that. And these are his closing words on this last day of the feast. If anyone thirsts, he is speaking to a hostile crowd, his enemies, and he's even saying to them, if any of you, even those of you who came to arrest me, if you will be honest and confess that you are thirsty, I will give you living water. There was even a moment on the cross when there was a soldier who stood at the foot as Jesus gave up his life and asked the Father to forgive them. This soldier who was part of putting Jesus on the cross stood and said, surely this was the Son of God. Anyone who thirsts, Jesus did not just come for the good people. He did not just come for the people who have it uh, halfway put together. He came so that anyone who would believe in him and would receive him would become a child of God. His water that he offers is free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go to enough CCD classes or Awana ceremonies. You don't have to get a, a Sunday school award ribbon. There is no amount of good works that you or I can do to earn his salvation. His water, his saving water, his life is offered freely to anyone who would receive it. The second thing we need to see about this is that if anyone thirsts, it tells us that we all thirst. Our soul thirsts. We have a physical body, but we also have a spiritual body. We are not just flesh and blood evolved over the ages. We are Images of God made in his likeness. Flesh, blood, bone, body, mind, spirit, soul. We are complete beings in him. And as our body needs water, our soul needs Father. We were made by him and for him. How many days without water and you're, you're done? Is it three? Many of us, we are living on our last breath because we're not drinking from the one who created us. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul is made to live on God. If anyone thirsts, tells us that Jesus says, come to me. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus is telling us that he doesn't have water to give us, but that he is the water. In chapter 6, he said, if any are hungry, come and eat of me. He doesn't have bread. He is our bread. Jesus is our drink. He is our food. And he is our life. Unless we drink of him and eat of him, we will not have the life us to have. So believing in Jesus is not simply just, oh, that's so nice that that man died for me and I don't have to go to hell anymore. Oh, that's so nice that he can bless me if 
I pray enough, if I sing enough, if I try to live a good enough life, maybe I'll have his blessings in my life. Jesus did not just come to be believed in, but to be to be worshipped, to be eaten of, to be drank of. Coming and drinking of him is what it means to believe. I can believe all day long that if this chair, if I were to sit in this chair, it would hold me up. But until I actually sit in it, I'm not putting my trust in it. We need to put our full faith and trust in Jesus and learn what it means to eat of him. Believing is receiving Jesus as water, as food, and life for our soul. Jesus is the water we need. Our soul needs to drink. And Jesus' drink satisfies every longing of the heart. The next thing we see here is that the river that flows from the soul is the promise of His Spirit in our lives. And at the moment that we come to eat of Him, to feast of Him, to believe in Him, He puts inside of us, the scriptures say, his spirit is a deposit. And as we learn to walk in the spirit, Galatians chapter 5 and 6, as we learn to walk in him, he fills us, every area of our life. Are you being filled by the spirit? Are you drinking of him? Romans 8 9 says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you have the son, you have the spirit. John 14, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he dwells in you and will be with you. beginning of the pages of the scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It was always his intention to be in relationship with us, to save us, to have a plan and a way for us to live. Jesus said that he, the seed of me, will crush the serpent. Jesus is from the beginning and will be with us till the end. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Both Mary and Joseph, just for history, both in the line of David. Hasn't the scripture said he would come from Bethlehem? Where was Jesus born? Hello? Bethlehem. Didn't the scripture say that it would come from the village of David. So there was division among them. Some of them wanted to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came, empty-handed. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Now talking to the, the soldiers, have any of you, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees, has anybody in this room put their belief in Jesus? If so, you're traitors. This crowd that does not know the law is accused, accursed. Nicodemus was there. 
we saw Nicodemus in chapter 3, we're going to see him now. We're going to see him in John chapter 1, 9 through 12. Nicodemus, who had gone out to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus is stunned here. He's a Pharisee. He's one of the elite. He's defending Jesus here. And they replied and said, are you also from Galilee? Are you one of his now? Are you a traitor? Are you from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet is without Lord Jesus, we know that you love us. I know you love us. And I pray that if there are some here today who have not come to realize for themselves your great, deep, unwavering, unconditional love for us, that they would open up their hearts to put their faith and trust in you, that they would come to you to drink of you. God, I also pray for those in this room who know you as Savior and Lord, that have received your spirit, that is to be the promise of rivers of flowing water, flowing in us, through us, and out of us, to nourish and reach and bless those who have placed their mouth on us. God, in different ways, shapes, and forms, we have dammed up the river and held it to ourselves, either out of a fear of not wanting to be rejected or fear of offending others, we have kept your spirit flowing through us to bless others. And God, I pray that you would help us to walk forward in courage and in boldness to share your love and your truth as offensive as it is. There is only one way and you are that way. And there are many in this world who do not yet know you. So God, I pray that you help us to be the vessel your living water flows. God, bring to our mind right now a classmate, a coworker, a neighbor, someone in our life that you want to use us to reach. Give us a burden and a passion to allow your Holy Spirit to fill every area of our lives so that we can be examples to those in our life who don't know you. Jesus, most of all, we thank you that your gift of living water is available and offered to anyone who comes. We all thirst. We try to quench our thirst in a number of different ways. All the time, Lord, our satisfaction can come from you. So help us to find and quench our thirst in you. Help us to share your rivers of water with worship team closes us in a time of worship and reflection and response. I encourage you to think about the things I've shared this morning and this week, things that the scriptures may have said to you in your heart. We should always leave the scriptures asking God, what do do you want me to do with this, Lord Jesus? During this time of reflection, allow his Holy Spirit to speak to you. Let us also remember by taking a communion with one another, we have four tables in the corners of the room where there's a piece of bread, a symbol of God's body, the 
form of Jesus broken for us, a cup, a symbol of his blood shed for us. And as we eat and taste of him, let us remember what he did for us and his commands. If you love me, obey my commands. I died for you. I rose again so that you would now live in me. So don't just shove it in and go on about your life. Think about it as you taste the sweetness of his love for us. At each table, we also have an empty basket. If you want to take that to God out of your tithes and offerings, an opportunity for you to continue to worship as we receive him. I'll be up here now through the end of service and between services. If you want to come forward and pray about salvation or just a heavy burden God has put in your life, any particular thing, I'd love to pray with you. Stand and let's worship.